All right. If you have your Bible, please turn to our, script, our sermon text, which is in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this in the Pew Bible on page 915. This summer, as I said, we're going through a series on salvation. And uh, each week we're looking at a new theme that the Bible brings up about how we are saved and what it means to be saved. Today, it's, it's one of the favorites that uh, all of God's people learn how to love very dearly, and that is that we are adopted as God's own children. So let me read to you, starting in verse 4, and we'll talk about this very awesome theme today. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. If you've ever seen the movie, I guess you can call it a classic now because it came out in the year 2000, which is a long time. If you've ever seen the movie, that's crazy, isn't it, that that was a long time ago, but if you've ever seen Gladiator, uh, you know that in the very beginning of that movie, there is an example of Roman adoption. Uh, Marcus Aurelius was the name of the emperor during the movie. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire, not an especially good or kind man. But he knew enough to know that his son was even worse than he was. His son was an evil young man, and he did not want to pass on the empire to his son. And so in the beginning of the movie, and this is fictional part, but in the beginning of the movie, he chooses Maximus, also known as Russell Crowe, to be his rightful heir instead of his son. And so he arranges to adopt him as his heir, to declare that he will now become the emperor instead of his son. Now, I will not do any spoiler alerts other than to say it doesn't work out the way that Marcus Aurelius planned it to work out. You'll have to go watch it to see. But right there, you have an example of why Paul would reach for that particular word that he uses in verse 5. Look at verse 5. There's a particular word he uses to describe what happens when a person becomes a Christian. In English, it's translated adoption as sons. Do you see it at the end of verse 5? It's one word in Greek. It's to be made a son. It's one word, son made or made son. And it's the very word that would have been used to describe what Marcus Aurelius did to Maximus. You see, in the Roman world, when they thought about adoption, they weren't like us. Today we think about adoption, and mostly what we think about are the relational aspects, which is good, and we're going to talk about that today, but the Bible means some more to it than just that, right? We think about how a child is welcomed into a new family, and they have this new web of relationships because they've been adopted, and that's wonderful. It's awesome, in fact. But in the Roman world, they thought more about the legal aspect of adoption than we tend to because in their minds to adopt a son particularly was to make that new adopted son the heir of everything. 
It was to make them the inheritor of all the family goods, along with all the responsibilities that come with it. Paul uses that word because he wants us to see three things about being adopted into God's family. Three things. Look at your bulletin. First of all, he wants us to note the status of sons. Secondly, he wants us to think about the experience of sons. And then lastly, in verse 7, the very last verse, he wants us to think a little bit about the life of sons. So let's look at it together. First of all, let's think about the status of sons in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 and 5, we learn that this idea of being adopted as sons into God's family was something that God had been working on for a long time. It had been in God's heart and mind from before the world was made, in fact. Uh, that, that phrase there at the beginning of verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son with a capital S. That idea of the fullness of time implies that there was a plan that God had made as to timing that at a certain point became fulfilled, and so it was the sending time. There was the planning time and the preparation time, and then there was the sending time. The planning and preparation time we call the Old Testament, where God was setting all the stage to make sure he could adopt a family of sons. And then the New Testament is the sending time, where God sends his son into the world, as an ambassador from another heavenly country to take sinners like us and rebels like us and to transform us into heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a beautiful thing when you think about it. It's astonishing actually when you begin to think about the dimensions of it. We are adopted not just into a very important human family as Christians, which would be amazing in itself. Think another movie, Annie, right? adopted into a very wealthy family. But here, it's not just a human family we're adopted into, but a heavenly family, a divine family, where the Son of God, with a capital S, shares his rights and privileges with us, with lowercase s's, by grace. In order to do this, it says, Jesus Christ had to come as an ambassador. That word sent forth in verse 4 implies this. It's like he's coming from one country to another. He's coming from heaven to earth. And so in order to come to earth, he had to be born into this world. The eternal son of God was sent from heaven to be born in the world of a woman, Mary, under the law of God. You hear about Christmas in July sometimes? This is what this is right now. We're, we're celebrating Christmas in July as I'm talking to you because here it is, the Christmas story all over in, again in the Bible. God made his son become a human being by conceiving him in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Mary gave birth to Christ, raised Christ under the direction of God, and that boy grew into a man and became the Savior God and man in one person, able to do everything necessary to make people like us sons of the Most High God. In fact, Paul gives us two important phrases to describe what Jesus would grow up to do as a, as a man. First of all, in verse 5, he redeems us 
from being under the law. This was the reason why Jesus had to be born under the law. Now, being under the law means simply that he was a human being like we, we are. I mean, when you, when you say someone's under the law, you mean they are required to keep the law. They are citizens of that jurisdiction. So all of us this morning are under the law of the state of Florida and under the law of the United States because that's where we are. To be human is to be under God's law, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? When does it become a bad thing to be under someone's law? Well, when you break it. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was waiting for. When you break it. For Jesus to be under the law, which he was, was not a bad thing because he kept it perfectly. The law never had any beef with Jesus because Jesus perfectly fulfilled every commandment of God. Me and you, however, to be under the law, it is no good at all because we have become liable to all of its penalties because we've broken God's commandments at various points throughout our whole lives. We still do. And so Jesus redeemed us from our position of being punished and liable under the law of God by becoming under the law for us and dying on the cross for us, carrying the penalty of our sin away, redemption. We are bought to be set free. We are bought to no longer be under a curse. In the previous chapter, uh, Genesis or Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And that was what Jesus did on the cross. He hung there, nailed there as a curse. God was pouring out the curses that our disobedience deserves on to Jesus. Now, why would God do that? Why would he send his son why would he put his son to death under the curse of the law? Why? It tells us in verse 5. That we might receive, there's that word, adoption of sons. This was God's great plan. God wanted a whole family full of sons who could inherit his riches. It was as if the son, Jesus, in some way, it was not enough for the Lord. Now I say that. With reverence, of course, Jesus was enough for his father. But I mean, he wanted more sons to share with. And so he made this plan of bringing human beings into the world, creating us, and then redeeming us through his son so that we might receive the full rights of sonship adopted and made heirs. Now, someone might ask, well, why does it say sons and not daughters? Is, are all the women excluded this morning? And I want to tell you, no, they're not. But we still should not translate that adoption as children. We need to keep it sons. Why? Because if we try to get all gender neutral with it, we actually lose a huge part of what Paul is trying to communicate. Because you see, in the Roman world in which Paul was writing, only sons could inherit. It was a Roman law that females could not inherit the family stuff. You say, well, I don't like that. And I say, well, I didn't make it up. Don't shoot the messenger. It's Roman law. I will say this, though, as a side note. In God's law, back in Deuteronomy, God said the women, the daughters, ought to be able to inherit in place of the sons when there is no sons. 
So God, of course, is more fair than the Romans. Not surprising. But for Romans, in their mind, to be an heir, you had to be a son. And so Paul says this revolutionary thing. All Christians are sons. In chapter 3, at the very end, he says, In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. Whether you're a male, whether you're a female, when you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you put on Christ and you become a son in the son. And all the rights and all the privileges that God's son deserve, you have been gifted by God's generosity. Wow. Tim Keller in his uh, Bible study on Galatians uses this illustration. He says it's like a judge not only pardons a criminal and releases him out of jail and commutes his sentence and expunges his record, but the judge were also on that very same day to give him the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's what Paul's talking about here, right? Which, of course, we want to immediately say, well, that's not fair. Especially if the guy's guilty or the, or the, the lady's guilty. To be pardoned and then to be honored with the highest honor in the land? Wow, that's not fair. Remember last week when we talked about justification. God has found a way to bless the ungodly and still be fair. Because he laid the curse on Jesus that we deserved. And now we are receiving, not what we deserve, but we are receiving what Christ deserves. And Christ's robe of righteousness has been given to us. Remember that cool story in Genesis? I, I, I like the story because there's so much intrigue in it. Where Jacob goes in and steals Esau's inheritance by dressing up like Esau. Because his dad can't see really well. It says in the Bible, Jacob was a smooth man. Esau was a hairy man. And so Jacob put on these hairy skins and put on Esau's clothes, made himself smell like Esau, went in, and the dad didn't know the difference, and so he blessed Jacob instead of Esau. Well, that was a trick. In fact, that was a, a sinful trick. But the Bible says in the gospel, that is exactly what happens justly and graciously at the cross. We get to now walk into our Heavenly Father's presence in the garments of Jesus Christ. When, when we walk in, He smells Jesus over our smell. Not because He's tricked, but because He willingly wanted that to happen. He lays the hand on our head and He blesses us, not because He's being duped, but because He wants to have many sons in glory with the Son of God, Jesus. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Adoption as sons is the highest blessing in the gospel that you can imagine. This is why J.I. Packer notes in his wonderful book, Knowing God, he notes that if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Ask him how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of God being his father. Like, that's the whole thing. That's the whole faith that we have. I mean, if you, if you don't understand yourself in all that you think, say, and do as a child of God and God as your heavenly father, you don't get it yet. 
Because it's at the very core of gospel blessing that all the things that God gives to his son Jesus, the authority, the affection, the fellowship, the honor that he bestows on Jesus, the inheritance, all of that now comes to us dressed in Christ's spotless robes. Now let me tell y'all, I think we're living in a time where we have an identity crisis of epic proportions. Right? We're told on the one hand, you are whatever you feel at any given time. You are what you feel. That's what defines you. That is your identity. Well, whew. How exhausting is that? I mean, how many different ways do you feel Sunday to Sunday throughout the week? I mean, how many different ways do you feel by the time you get to lunchtime each day? So glad that doesn't have to define us. On the other hand, and this is contradictory, but hey, the world always contradicts itself if you pay attention because the world doesn't know God, and so it will always contradict itself. On the other hand, it says you are what you feel. And then on the other hand, it says you are what everybody else thinks you are. And so on social media and other places, we feed off of and live off of the likes and the attention and the naming that people name us. That's also exhausting. Maybe even more exhausting than the first one. It's especially exhausting when we feel like both are true at the same time. So let me help you all this morning. All right, I know that I'm a voice crying in the wilderness here because I'm against the whole culture on this. But I want to say this. There is objective reality outside of yourself. There is an objective truth because God said it before you were born. And here is the objective truth about you as a believer in Christ. You are a son of the Most High God adopted into his family. When you wake up in the morning, don't ask yourself first, what do I feel? Please don't let that be the first and last thing you think about. Please don't first reach for your phone and see who answered your texts and how they answered or who liked your posts and how they liked it and all that stuff. Please don't go there first and last. Instead, go to the Lord your God and ask him what he thinks. His answer will always be the same. Galatians 4, 5 never changes. You are redeemed. You are received as adopted sons. Wow. Isn't that good? That's the status of sons. But let's look in the second place at verse 6 where Paul helps us to see the experience of sons. There's not just an objective reality that God has given us through giving his son. But in verse 6, there is a subjective experience of that being a child of God that God also gifts us. Look at what it says. Verse 6, because you are sons. Okay, there's the objective reality that we were just talking about. You are sons. It is true no matter what you feel. It's true no matter what everybody else thinks about you. If you're a Christian, you are sons. Because of that, God has sent someone else now, not just his son, but God has now sent the spirit of his son. 
God sends the Holy Spirit, called here the Spirit of his Son, because don't you know that the Holy Spirit was with Jesus as a human being every step of his life, helping him to know who he was before the Lord, helping him to do what God sent him to do. This says that same Spirit is given to us, not just to us as a whole, but to us even as individuals. It says here that the Spirit is sent into our hearts. Meaning if you were going to map out with a pen, where is the Holy Spirit? There would be millions of pins on the map. Everywhere that there is a true Christian believing in Jesus, there would be a pen. Stuck directly at the coordinates of their heart. Because the Spirit has moved in to dwell in us. Now, why is he there? He's there, it says, to cry out, Abba, Father. He's there to make your sonship more than just a theory, but a lived experience of your life. That word crying, what does that sound like to you? Does it sound like a dainty, precious moments prayer? sweet little prayer no crying I mean this is a strong word this is actually the word used of Jesus on the cross where it says he cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me I mean that was that was some prayer it was heartfelt it was honest and yet it was bold I mean it was confident he went to God he says you're my God even though I feel like you're forsaking me I still believe you're my God and I'm still going to go to you, and I'm still going to pray to you. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit teaches us almost by a new instinct. He puts a new instinct into your heart to want to cry out to God boldly and confidently. Abba, Father. To want to cry out with confidence that God is going to hear you and receive you because you are a son in Jesus Christ. Now, I love that he uses two words, and the two words mean the same thing. Abba, Father, that's the Hebrew or Aramaic and the Greek word for father that children and young people would use to describe their parent, their, their male parent. Abba, Father. Wow. Why do you think he puts it in Hebrew and in Greek? Well, of course, because he just said there is no Jew or Greek in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what the word Father is in your language. If you go to him with a heart that wants to speak to your Father, he will listen. Whether he's Father, whether he's, you know, Padre, right? Otol-san in Japanese. It doesn't matter what you call God as Father. If you call him with your heart, God hears you and listens because every believer, no matter where they're from, is an adopted child. Here's another cool thing about it. The word Abba is a word never used of God until Jesus Christ. The word Father, you can find that to describe God in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, never does it use the word Abba. But when we read about Jesus praying, that is most often the way he addresses God. It's a term of endearment. It's 
probably not, as some people often say, it's probably not dada or daddy. And that's a very popular idea, but that's kind of been a little bit discredited by a lot of scholars who have studied it a little bit more in depth. But nevertheless, it is a very personal, familial word that you would only use unless you knew that person was, in fact, your dad. The Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. He makes us feel it. Think about the child walking along the sidewalk with his father. All along the way, that child is truly a son of the father. Absolutely truly. But when the father reaches down and scoops the son up and holds him close and says, I love you, I guarantee you he feels more like a son than he did when he was just walking alongside. And that's the Spirit's work. God is concerned that you not only know you're his child, but that you feel it. Because feeling that you're his child is a huge part of living the Christian life. And so he's made provision for it. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's paid special attention to us because he knows we need it. He knows how often we're going to doubt that we're children of God. Do you ever doubt that? Yeah. We can all in this room think of reasons to doubt that we're children of God, can't we? And actually, most of the reasons would be fairly valid. But it's a little bit like you with your kids. You, you know, every, every family has the kid or two that requires special attention. Right? Were you that child? <laughs> Do you know who that child is in your family that requires special attention? Well, you paid them that attention, not because you don't like them or because you're annoyed, but because you actually love them. And you know that they're going to have a little extra trouble in these areas than the other one. And so you're going to put more of your resources into them to help them overcome it. Well, God saw that every one of his sons would have really big trouble believing that they were really children of God, elevated to the level of heirs, because it's so almost unbelievable that he gave us his highest resource possible. He gave us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to bear witness with us that we're his children. Have you experienced that? Do you know in your heart that, that instinct to cry out to God, my Father in heaven, my Father, help me. Listen, that spirit of prayer is a sign that God is at work by grace in your heart. That spirit of prayer that doesn't want to run from God but toward Him even in the worst situations and is bold enough to say, Father, is a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. What a blessing God gave us. Not just the status of sons, but the experience of sons. Now let's look in the last place at the life of sons. And this is in verse 7. Paul wants us to understand there is a new way of life that those who are adopted should take on. The old way of life should be done with. Notice how Paul in verse 7 draws two conclusions from what he's been teaching. He draws the first conclusion, and then he draws a conclusion from that conclusion. He's showing, he's modeling for us how to, 
by the way, how to reason from the scriptures, how, how to think out God's thoughts after him by drawing conclusions from the truths of the Bible. He says in verse 7, So you are no longer a slave. So, the word so, the word therefore, because of everything I've been telling you about the sending of the Son and then now the sending of the Spirit, you are no longer slave. Your old way of thinking and living, gone. You should not live like a slave anymore. But look, something new. You're a son. And so you should live as if you're a son of God. And then he draws a conclusion from that. If you are then a son and not a slave, you're an heir through God. In other words, there is nothing that God has that is for your good that he's going to withhold from you. Wow. What reasoning. And I want to tell you all. The feeling and the acting as if we are slaves is something really hard to get rid of. It does not come easy. Think about all the things that are different between a slave and a son in the family. It's a big difference, isn't it? They're treated very differently. They have very different privileges and rights. They're both required to obey, but for two very different reasons, with two very different you know, approaches and strategies. You, you can really think about, for an illustration, think about the prodigal son and his older brother. Remember that story? The two sons of the father. Which son of the two ended up being the most true son of the father? The crazy one. The one who took off and wasted all his father's money. The reason why he became the only true son is because his heart was sufficiently convinced that his father loved him and his father was going to give him everything that was his. And so he came back with gratitude and joy and peace and all those kinds of things and love Meanwhile, you have the older son who never left, who seemed to be so promising. How did he speak to his father? Well, he actually uses the word slave, doesn't he? He says, look, father, I have slaved for you all these years. I've done everything you've told me to do. I have been your slave. And you never threw a party for me and my friends. You never even gave me a goat. That's what he says. And this knucklehead over here, you're throwing a big party and you're giving him the fattened calf. Is that how you treat your slaves? What did the son not understand? It's painfully obvious, isn't it? He was never meant to be a slave. I know we joke about having kids so that we have someone to mow the yard for us. But that isn't actually true, is it? We know that. We just joke that way. That's not really the reason why we have kids. Mostly. And this is a true thing about God. God did not send his son into the world so that he might bring many slaves into the kingdom. 
He doesn't send his spirit to dwell in your heart because he wants you to, to rub your nose into your slavery more deeply. No, he gave his son and he gave his spirit so that he might bring sons to glory. People who are willing, loving, joyful because they are secure in the Father's love. But I'm telling you, that takes time. That takes effort. Notice how Paul has to reason them into it in verse 29. If you are, you know, he says, so you are no longer a slave but a son. He's having to draw the conclusion for them and reason with them. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. He's breaking it down as if to children. And it's just a reminder of how much we have to reason ourselves by the Holy Spirit into believing we're sons. Because every day we wake up and that old slavish mentality is back. And there we are, treating obedience to God as if it were a drudgery. Uh, there we are, getting all bitter at God because he hasn't given us what we deserve for our slavery, right? There we are again, acting like we're condemned and still under a curse when Jesus has taken the curse from us. There we are again acting like poor woe is me when we literally have the riches of God bestowed upon us. Do we not do that? I know I do. That's when we have to take our soul by the collar. And I hope you know how to do this. Sometimes you have to take your own soul and your own heart by the shirt and say, look here, soul. Seriously, look here, soul. So you are no longer a slave. Stop acting like a slave. Was not Christ the Son sent for you? Did he not redeem you on the cross? Did he not give you the full rights of sonship when you believed? Has the Spirit not been given to your heart to cry, Abba, Father? You are no longer a slave. You're a son. And look here, soul. If I told you once, I told you a million times. If you're a son, you're also an heir. What do you think it is that you lack, O soul? Don't you know that whatever is necessary for your eternal good, your heavenly Father is pleased to give you? Do you know how to give your soul to what for? As a Christian, you will find that it is one of the most important daily skills that you can develop. If you don't, um, days will turn to weeks and weeks will turn to months and months maybe sometimes even to years. And you will get yourself in such a spiritual rut of slavish mentality that it's going to be hard for the whole church to reach in there and grab you out. But if every Christian knew how, based on the word, to work along with the Holy Spirit and to... Soul, you're a son. You've believed. Your hope is in Jesus. Wow. I'd work myself out of a job. That's the goal of my job. <laughs> I won't have to do this in heaven. Right? Now think about that. Think about adoption to sonship. 
I think there is no greater blessing that God gives his people than this. It's a status. It's an experience. The Holy Spirit living in us and wrestling within us, calling out to God. And y'all, it is also a lifestyle where we're leaving behind slavish and orphan-like ways and learning how to live as adopted children of the King.